You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Conflict and Triumph, Episode 2, with Walter Fite. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, when the issue of your character comes up for discussion, the devil is very, very angry. And therefore I pray for your special guidance, your special presence, and may the angels surround us in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday we spoke about pearls of truth in settings of gold. Now, I didn't choose that title haphazardly. A pearl is something that develops through pain. And you will remember that the gates of the New Jerusalem are of pearls because there was a lot of pain involved in setting up the New Jerusalem. And gold in the Bible means character. I counsel to you, of you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. And these precious truths that were discovered in the Reformation and post-Reformation period, every single one of them was contested and the people were hounded and persecuted and tortured and killed in the most horrendous ways by both Roman Catholics and Protestants. And that is something that is very hard to comprehend and to understand. But history tells us that that is exactly what happened. And when these precious jewels had been gathered, these precious pearls, God took them to the United States of America and to North America in general, not only the United States. And that's why in the series we have that map in the background on the front there. But that was not all that God did. There were certain things that still had to be corrected because there were so many misconceptions on the character of God. And the work that the Reformation had done was not complete. It was incomplete. And so God had to raise up one organization after the other. And the Anabaptists, they were the one that started the idea of you know, adult baptism. And then the idea of the premillennial coming of Christ. And for all of these things, they were persecuted, but the idea had been planted. And all these remnants of God's suffering people had moved away out of persecution. And then God raised up the Baptist church. And there were super preachers amongst the Baptists. And you think of Spurgeon. But you remember what he was? He was a particular Baptist. Which means he had Calvinistic mindset. And then that movement, when it was persecuted and hounded and later, to an extent, accepted in Europe, moved also to the United States and became the largest movement. But even that eventually broke up into 
different groups, different thinking, some thinking this way, some thinking that way, and Seventh-day Baptists started arising. So all of these ideas were in this tank, but they hadn't been gathered together because the time was not yet right to gather them together. Something else had to be set straight, and that was the issue of the character of God. Because God is on trial. He is on trial. And humanity has to determine whether God is just or whether God is not just. Because the devil accused God of being unjust. He said to God, you cannot be both merciful and just at the same time. The two exclude each other. And so he had planted this idea of this this deity, this wrathful deity that was either all mercy or all justice. And something was missing. How do we understand God? So God had to raise up another movement. And that movement, which I hadn't discussed yet, was the Methodist movement. The Methodists. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, described God's grace as prevenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Now, he was in the Church of England. He was an Anglican. Our Wesleyan heritage, if we have a look at their own webpage, the people of the United Methodist Church, we asked them what they stand for and what the distinctive emphasis of the Methodist Church was. Wesley and the early Methodists were particularly concerned about inviting people to experience God's grace and to grow in their knowledge and love of God through disciplined Christian living. They placed primary emphasis on Christian living, on putting faith and love into action. This emphasis on what Wesley referred to as practical divinity has continued to be a hallmark of the United Methodism today. Well, that's a very noble thing. What is prevenient grace or enabling grace? It's a Christian theological concept rooted in Arminian theology. And we have to discuss that because we have to understand how the pearls of truth were coming together. And here was a can of worms that had to be opened up for debate. And no one person was going to do this. It had to be a movement. It had to permeate into the minds of people before they could shift or have this paradigm shift in their thinking about God. It is divine grace that precedes human decision. In other words, God will start showing love to that individual at a certain point in his lifetime. Now, I'm not sure whether I agree with that. God showed love before you were even there. Prevenient grace is embraced primarily by Armenian Christians who are influenced by the theology of Jacob Arminius or John Wesley. So John Wesley adopted the Arminian concept. So we'll have to discuss this. So Wesleyan Arminians believe that grace enables but does not ensure personal acceptance of the gift of salvation. 
Wesley typically referred to it in his 18th century language as prevenient grace. In current English, the phrase preceding grace would have a similar meaning. Okay, so what are we getting at here? He also spoke about sanctifying grace. So salvation is not a static one-time event in our lives because those people who placed super emphasis on justification said, you're justified and that's it. You believe and that's it. But Wesley said, no. There's something more. John Wesley described this dimension of God's grace as sanctification or holiness. Through God's sanctifying grace, we grow and mature in our ability to live as Jesus lived. As we pray, study the scripture, fast, worship, share in fellowship with other Christians, we deepen our knowledge of and the love for God. And as we respond with compassion to human needs and work for justice in our communities, we strengthen our capacity to love our neighbor. Our inner thoughts, motives, as well as the outer actions and behavior are aligned with God's will and testify to our union with God. Why was it necessary that this concept, that you cannot just have business as usual when you become a Christian, you have to clean up your act. You can't be like you were and say, well, Jesus loves me, this I know, and therefore I'm going to be just fine, and uh, that's all I need. So this issue of sanctification needed to be addressed in no uncertain term. And the Methodists did this. Do you think they were well received? Everybody embraced them and said, marvelous. Well, they weren't Methodists at the time. They were teaching in the Church of England. They weren't Methodists. They were pastors in the, in the, in the Church of England. So what did Wesley mean by perfection and sanctification? By perfection, Wesley did not mean that we would not make mistakes or have weakness. Rather, he understood it to be continual process of being made perfect in our love of God and each other and of removing our desire to sin. This was a totally new concept. So, faith and works. The United Methodists insist that faith and good works belong together. What we believe must be confirmed by what we do. Personal salvation must be expressed in ministry and mission in the world. There must be a change, a decided change. Now, what did they believe regarding the law? Well, let's ask Wesley himself. Sermons on several occasions. This handwriting of ordinances, speaking about the ceremonial law, our Lord did blot out, take it away and nail it to his cross. Colossians 2.14 But the moral law contained in Ten Commandments and enforced by the prophets, he did not take away. The moral law stands on an entirely different foundation from the ceremonial or ritual law. Every part of this law must remain in force upon all mankind in all ages. That was the Methodist view of the law. No Christian whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. So this idea had to spread throughout the churches. And then he talks about 
Arminianism. Now, what was that? Well, you see, Calvin had a totally different theology. Calvin believed in predestination, that God, by a decree, predetermined whether you would be saved or whether you would be lost. And Calvinism eventually uh, was embraced by the state. And so in the Netherlands, for example, and also in, uh, in Switzerland and all the areas where Calvinism was prevalent, John Knox was a Calvinist in Scotland, all of these people embraced the ideas of Calvinism. And Calvinism, finally, at the Council of uh, Dort, at Dortrecht, called the Council of Dort, decided to address an uh, opposition which they had received from Arminius. So the Synod of Dort came together in 1618 to 1619, and there on the, on the left we have an engraving of that event. Now, perseverance of the saints, also known as perseverance of God with the saints and preservation of the believing. The word saints is used to refer to all who are set apart by God and not of those who are exceptionally holy, canonized, or in heaven. Asserts that God is sovereign and his will cannot be frustrated by humans or anything else. Those whom God has called into communion with himself will continue in faith until the end. Those who fall, apparently fall away were never truly in the faith. So, God called you, you will not fall away. Never. You've been predetermined for salvation. What incentive is there in that to get your life in order? Any? None. Because no matter what, you're going to be saved. This is a Calvinistic view. This comes from what they believe. Now John Wesley said, no, there's something terribly wrong with this theology. And he arose at four in the morning, lived simply, methodically, and was never idle if he could help it. This comes from the New World Encyclopedia. Although he was not a systematic theologian, Wesley argued in favor of Christian perfection and opposed high Calvinism, notably the doctrine of predestination. So Wesley became the new champion on the block for Arminianism, because Arminius had before challenged Calvinism. We'll see how that took place. His emphasis on practical holiness stimulated a variety of social reform activities both in Britain and the United States. His theology constituted a counterbalance to the Enlightenment that endorsed humanism and even atheism in the 18th century. So at exactly the right time, when mankind was embracing the liberal ideas of uh, the French Revolution, God raises up this organization. It goes out and it preaches these messages. Sanctification is important. We need to understand the character of God. We have to go against enlightenment, against humanism, against atheism. Methodist meetings were frequently disrupted by mobs. 
These were encouraged by the local clergy and sometimes local magistrates. Methodist buildings were ransacked, preachers harassed and beaten. A favorite tactic of Methodist baiters was to drive oxen into congregations assembled for field preaching. <laughs> so they just drove their cattle through those meetings. They were not well received. What does this tell you about the mentality of humanity? There's something wrong out there, isn't there? Because what were they preaching? They were preaching nothing other than the word of God. Methodist drinking, still a touchy subject. This is quite a new uh, article in terms of when these people arose. The general rules of 1743 ruled out buying or drinking spirituous liquors, except in cases of extreme necessity, meaning medicinal use. It was not total abstinence, but abstinence from the hard stuff, whiskey, gin in particular. And then after the Civil War, as Methodism expanded in the United States, Methodist women especially began to steer the denomination towards a harder line as temperance movements gained steam. And by the early 20th century, the church endorsed prohibition and required Methodist ministers to pledge abstinence from alcohol. What did they say? They said the body is the temple of God and you are not allowed to abuse it. So who introduced this kind of theology into the world? It wasn't Seventh-day Adventists. The Methodists started it. So this movement spread and the Methodists became the second largest denomination in the United States of America. So it had a huge influence. Now, what was the issue regarding Methodism, Calvinism, predestination, and the synod that took place at Dortrecht? Dort. Well, on October the 20th, 1743, John Wesley rode into a town of Wensbury in the West Midlands, and as his custom was, he proceeded to preach in the middle of the town in the open air. Well, they grabbed the poor man, dragged him through the streets, grabbed him by the hair, pulled him through the streets. And uh, after preaching, he retired to a local Methodist house. There he was engaging in his endless correspondence when a mob beset the house and forced Wesley to come with them to the local magistrate. This is how Wesley describes the scene in his journal. To attempt speaking was in vain, for the noise on every side was like the roaring of the sea. So they dragged me along till we came to the town, where seeing the door of a large house open, I attempted to go in, but a man catching me by the hair pulled me back into the middle of the mob. They made no more stop till they had carried me through the main street from one end of the town to the other. I continued speaking all the time to those within hearing, feeling no pain or weariness. At the west end of the town, seeing a door half open, I made towards it and would have gone in, but a gentleman in the shop would not suffer me, saying that he would pull the house down to the ground. However, I stood at the door and asked, Are you willing to hear me speak? Many cried, No, no, knock his brains out, down with him, kill him at once. Nay, but we will hear him first, said the other. I began asking, What evil have I done? Which of you all have I wronged in a word or deed and continued speaking for above a quarter of an hour till my voice suddenly failed? 
Then the floods began to lift up their voice again, my crying out, bring him away, bring him away. What is remarkable about this story is that Wesley was an ordained Anglican priest. So he was trying to transform the church from within. But humanity does not like any new idea that, well, requires something of you. So riots regularly broke out at Methodist meetings. Chapels were vandalized and destroyed. Preachers were attacked. So here again, if you really believe this and you stand for it, and suffering on the behalf of Christ, Christ honors it. So this message had its effect. Persistence in the midst of persecution, in their mission to bring the Christian message to every town and village in Great Britain, the 18th century Methodist preachers traveled extensively. They would arrive at the place, attempt to preach in one of the churches. Failing that, they would go to the marketplace. They were under constant attack. And this wedge God drove into the minds of the then time people. So let's have a look at this great debate between Arminius and eventually the champion thereof, who was Wesley. So besides Christful preaching, Methodists also preached sanctified living. They regarded the body as the temple of God, advocated health practices, such as abstaining from harmful habits, such as smoking and drinking. And because they used this methodology, they were called Methodists. But his greatest contribution well, you can't really categorize it as greater or less great, but one of his great contributions was being a champion of what Arminius had said. So let's have a look at that. John Calvin, he gave the name Calvinism to this entire movement, this thought direction that we will be discussing. And in 1560 to 16. 109, James Arminius opposed the ideas of Calvin on salvation. So the history of the Calvinist-Arminian debate begins in the early 17th century in the Netherlands with a Christian theological dispute between the followers of John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius and continues today among some Protestants, particularly Evangelical. So this argument hasn't been settled. It's still ongoing. The debate centers around the soteriology or the study of salvation and includes disputes about depravity, predestination, and atonement. So while the debate was given its Calvinist Armenian form in the 17th century, issues central to the debate have been discussed in Christianity since the time of Augustine. So the controversy marks the transformation of the Armenian movement into a separate, please note, persecuted church organization in the Netherlands. Whenever a new thought arises, then there is persecution. For Armenians, it was the start of full persecution after the imposition of an edict while for Calvinists, it resulted in the setting in clear points of doctrine that were initiated by John Calvin and clarified by Theodor Beza. And this, well, the Lutherans didn't go along with it. 
quite, so they separated from these ideas. So what was it about? So the Armenians, those who followed Arminius, is based on the theological idea of the Dutch Reformed theologian Jacobus Arminius and his historic supporters known as Remonstrants. So what did these Remonstrants do? It is known as a soteriological, in other words, the issue of salvation, sect of Protestant Christianity. Dutch Arminianism was originally articulated in the Remonstrance of 1610, a theological statement signed by 45 ministers and submitted to the States General of the Netherlands. And the Synod of Dort was called by the States General to consider the five articles of Remonstrance. So these were arguments against Calvinism. Number one, election. Calvin had argued you are either predestined for salvation or you are predestinated for damnation. They said election and condemnation on the day of judgment was conditioned by the rational faith or non-faith of the man. They said, Arminius said, this is not biblical. This is not biblical. God doesn't elect you to be saved or elect you to be lost. He has a foreknowledge of whether you will be saved or when you will be lost, but he doesn't determine that you will be lost. You have a rational choice to make. Then the atonement, while qualitatively adequate for all men, was efficacious only for the man of faith. So Arminius said... You are saved through your choice and through your faith in your Savior. Calvin had said, no, no. You are saved because God predetermined you to be saved. Point three was, unaided by the Holy Spirit, no person is able to respond to God's will. That's biblical. God calls everyone. God's grace is resistible. Now that was a major, because Calvin had said, no, when you are called, when you are predetermined, you are standing under irresistible grace. You will be saved whether you like it or not. Number five was believers are able to resist sin, but are not beyond the possibility of falling from grace. Calvin had said, no, if you've been predestined to be saved, you're going to be saved, whether you like it or not. You are under irresistible grace, you will be saved. And if you are predestined to damnation, well, then bad luck for you. You are going to go to hell. So many Christians denominations today have been influenced by the Armenian views, notably the Baptists, only part of them. What was Spurgeon? He was a Calvinist. So the greatest preacher of all time in modern Protestantism was a Calvinist. The Methodists, the Congregationalists, the early New England colonies, centuries, and the Universalists, the Unitarians, Denominations such as the Anabaptists and all of these, they believed in the free will of man. Man has a choice to make. Yes, we are fallen, but God honors our choice. 
So, what did the Synod of Dort decide? This is the Calvinist. They've been challenged by the remonstrance, and now the Synod comes together to consider the five articles of the remonstrance, and this is their decision. Total depravity, also called total inability, asserts that as a consequence of the fall of man into sin, every person is a slave to sin. People are not by nature inclined to love God, which is true, but rather to serve their own interests than to reject the rule of God. Thus, all people by their own faculties are morally unable to choose to trust God for their salvation and be saved. So the term total in this context refers to sin, affecting every part of the person, not that every person is as evil as they could be. This doctrine is derived from Augustine's explanation of original sin. Ooh. And they confirm an Augustinian doctrine of predestination. Now remember, what was Martin Luther? He was an Augustinian monk. So he also had those ideas in his mind to a greater or lesser extent. Then unconditional election asserts that God has chosen from eternity those whom he will bring to himself, not based on the foreseen virtue, merit, or faith of those people. Rather, his choice is unconditionally grounded in his mercy alone, God has chosen from eternity to extend mercy to those he has chosen and to withhold mercy from those he has not chosen. Confirmed by the Council of Dort. Okay. Limited atonement was the next point. What does that mean? Also called particular redemption. What was Spurgeon? A particular Baptist. What does that mean? What does this mean? Asserts that Jesus substitutionary atoned was definite and certain in its purpose and in what it accomplished. This implies that only the sins of the elect were atoned for by Jesus' death. Calvinists do not believe, however, that the atonement is limited in its value or power, but rather that the atonement is limited in the sense that it is intended for some and not for all. This is Calvinism. Okay. Next point, irresistible grace. Arminius had said, no, you can resist grace. After all, doesn't the Bible say you always resist the Holy Spirit? Also, efficacious grace asserts that the saving grace of God is effectually applied to those whom he has determined to save and overcome their resistance to obeying the call of the gospel. This means that when God sovereignly purposes to save someone, that individual certainly will be saved. The doctrine holds that this purposeful influence of God's Holy Spirit cannot be resisted. Are you getting this? This is Calvinism. This is the thought process of a vast number of people out there counted in the millions in the various churches that believe this. And in order to counter this theology, Arminius was raised up and he was persecuted and the Arminians were hounded and it took something else to bring it to the fore again. And God used Methodism to do that. Now here's an allegory 
a painting of that time, which is rather fascinating. And uh, it's the dispute between the Arminianists and, of course, the Calvinists. And you will see the Arminianists here on the left and the Calvinists on the right. And they, on the left, the Arminianists, have as their document the Bible and their remonstrance document on the scale. You see that? So there's the, their document of remonstrance there. But the Calvinists have the Bible. And what is that other thing that's on the scale? The sword. The sword, which means the power of the state. And which side is heavier? This one. So the Calvinists had the state on their side, and therefore the Armenians lost the argument and were hounded and persecuted and uh, treated like everyone else who was trying to find uh, a, a doctrine, a pearl of truth, to set it in settings of gold. Now, is this an ancient thing that happened in the 1600s? I live in a Calvinist country. I live in South Africa. And the church, the largest church there and their sister churches, are the Dutch Reformed Church, which is Calvinist. And last year, they had a major dispute as to whether the points of Dort were still acceptable and were to be the heart of the doctrine of the Dutch Reformed Church. Because so many charismatic churches has arisen, and there was confusion. So they had a synod in South Africa, and they decided to absolutely endorse all the points of Dortrecht. So that's the theology that we are confronted with in South Africa. And, of course, in the rest of the Calvinistic world. This is how they think. Now, there are a number of problems here, major problems that have to be addressed. So the five points of Ar Arminianism, Article 1, that God, by an eternal, unchangeable purpose in Jesus Christ, his Son, before the foundation of the world, has determined out of the fallen, sinful race of men to save in Christ and for Christ's sake and through Christ those who through the grace of the Holy Spirit shall believe on his son Jesus and shall persevere in this faith and obedience of faith through his grace even to the end and on the other hand to leave the incorrigible and unbelieving in sin and under wrath and to condemn them as alienated from Christ according to the word of the gospel. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. And according to other passages of the Scripture also. So they say, Christ died for all. The choice whether you accept it or not lies with you. This is Arminian point number one. Let's go to point two again. That agreeable thereto, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross redemption and forgiveness of sins. We owe our salvation to Jesus Christ. Article 3, that man has not saving grace of himself, nor of the energy of his free will, inasmuch as he, in the state of apostasy and sin, 
can of and by himself neither think, will, nor do anything that is truly good, such as having faith eminently is. But that is needful, that he be born again of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit and renewed in understanding, inclination, or will, and all his powers, in order that he might rightly understand, think, will, etc. So they say, yes, we are depraved, but God nevertheless doesn't override your freedom of choice when it comes to accepting him or not. This grace of God is the beginning, continuance, and accomplishment of a good, even to the extent that the regenerate man himself, without the prevenient or existing awakening, following, etc., etc., but, they claim, this grace is not irresistible. Calvin had said, you cannot resist God's grace, you will be saved if you are elected. They say, you can resist it. Of course you can resist it. And then they quote, it is written concerning many that they resisted the Holy Ghost. So this is not biblical what Calvin is saying, they say. And Article 5, that those who are incorporated into Christ by true faith and have thereby become partakers of his life-giving spirit, have full power to strive against Satan, sin, the world, and their own flesh, and to win the victory, it being well understood that it is ever through the assisting grace of the Holy Ghost. And Methodism embraced Arminianism and became the champion thereof. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand, but whether they are capable through negligence of forsaking it again, and the first beginning of their life in Christ of again returning to the present evil world, you can't choose that. So Arminians taught that Calvinist predestination and unconditional election made God the author of evil. Now, Calvinism has actually two levels of Calvinism. There's high Calvinism and low Calvinism. And the churches are basically split along those two lines. You have different congregations of Calvinism. Now, high Calvinism says that God created Adam to fall. God created Adam to fall so that his grace can be displayed. Who's the author of sin then? Okay. Low Calvinism says, no, God didn't create Adam to fall, but he did fall. But then God chooses whom he will save out of that race, and they will be saved like it or not. So actually, low Calvinism is not much better when it comes to this than high Calvinism. This is an important debate. It's very important, and we need to understand this debate. Let's just go through some of the Bible verses. Predestination. Is it biblical? Psalms 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Yes, I have a sinful propensity from birth, even from conception. That's biblical. Surely, Isaiah 48 verse 8, you did not hear, surely you did not know, surely from long ago your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. Yes, I've been a sinner with an evil propensity from the womb. 
Isaiah 64, verse 6. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. That's the basis of Calvinism. Do these verses exclude your freedom of choice? That is the question. These verses describe our condition. But what manner of choice do we have? Based on these verses, Calvinism says, therefore you cannot have a choice. Therefore God makes the choice for you. Because you are so depraved, you cannot make the choice. You cannot even seek after God. And that is true. God seeks after us. But is there an element of choice? This is the question. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Right? This is our condition. Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Calvin says, you see, there's predestination. Romans 8, 30, Moreover, from whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and he justified, these he also glorified. Calvin says, see, Bible says exactly what I'm saying. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those at his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So who's hellfire prepared for? Not for humanity, according to that text. Ezekiel 3, 16. Now it came to pass at the end of seven days that the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word of my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked man and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin and his righteousness, which he has done shall not be remembered, but the blood I will require at your hand. Must we warn people of wickedness? Yes or no? Yes. Excuse me, what's the point if he's chosen for salvation in any case? Why should I warn anyone if God has already decided who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved? Why should I worry? There's no point in evangelism if everybody has been predetermined for one or the other. If you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning. Also, you will have delivered your soul. Then the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise, go out into the plain, and there I shall talk with you. So I arise, and he went, and etc. Then the Spirit entered me, and set me on my feet, and spoke with me, and said, Go shut yourself inside your house. And you, O son of man, surely they put, put ropes on you, and bind you with them, so you cannot go out amongst them. If you preach that people must change their ways, 
Will they accept you? Did they accept Wesleyanism? Did they accept the Methodists? Did they accept any of the pearls of truth? No. I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall not be mute and not be one to rebuke them for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, he who hears, let him hear. We have to preach. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33. Therefore, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, we pine away in them. How can we then live? Say, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why would you die, O house of Israel? Does that sound like uh, election to you? Doesn't sound like it to me. Therefore, say to the children of your people, the righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. Can you turn from God, yes or no? Uh, well, absolutely. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he will die. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, well, then he will live. He will not die. There's no election in that whatsoever. There's a choice. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered. The soul who sins, he shall die. And these sins are not transferable. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin of which he has committed. Because of them he shall die. Not because God determined ahead of time, even before Adam was created, that he was going to fall and sin so that God can be glorified through his grace. What kind of a character does, of God is being portrayed in that theology? Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he committed, he will surely live. He will not die. You have a choice. And if it seems evil to you, Joshua, to serve the Lord, what is that word? Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Yes, I'm totally depraved. But nevertheless, God honors my choice. He calls me. He invites me. He introduces me to his grace. And once he has done that through his spirit, he says to me, do you want it? And I have a choice. I can say, yes, I want it. I can say, I'm weak, help me. Or I can say, no, I don't want it. And I can turn away from it. I have a choice. Why would Elijah say that uh, they should choose between two opinions in 1 Kings 18. Why do you hold between two opinions? If God is God, then do what God says. If you want to follow Baal, then follow him. Surely there's a, a shift there. If I am lifted up, I will draw some people to myself. Is that true? 
No, all people to myself. Does that mean they will all accept him? No. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, these promises are just amazing. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And so we must look at the lifted Savior like Moses lifted up the serpent. So God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. These things are as clear as crystal, hopefully, to everyone sitting here, but it wasn't clear as crystal to Christianity. They had a totally different view of Christianity. Even the greatest preacher of all time had a different view. So what was John Wesley's view on predestination? All his life, John Wesley stood with the tradition of English Arminianism. But from the early days of the Methodist revival, his position on predestination became a particularly important and divisive issue. Of course, his relationship with George Whitfield was the background of the controversy, since Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist. So this debate was made prominent, and God saw to it that it became prominent. And there were pamphlets and warfare, and they argued on this issue. The history of the controversy, which flared up three times during Wesley's lifetime, is interesting in itself. But in this post, I'm going to not go into all the details. This is what this webpage says. The first key concern had to do with the character of God. It is a mistake to think that Wesley's rejection of unconditional election was rooted in an optimistic view of human nature, as opposed to a more robust Calvinistic understanding of depravity. Wesley agreed with the historic Calvinist position on total depravity. Yes, we are depraved, we are fallen, there's no one that's good. We all agreed on that, said Wesley. That is true. But your arguments based on that are no longer true. So, the fundamental difference between Wesley and his Calvinist opponents really lies more in their respective understanding of the nature of God. Wesley felt that the idea of absolute unconditional predestination by divine decree was inconsistent with God's justice as well as his love and his goodness. So we need to understand this debate. We need to understand what kind of God we are serving. Generally speaking, the Calvinist tradition has seen sovereignty through the model of the ruling monarch and uh, as opposed to the model of the loving parent. And Wesley's second key concern, and this is very important, related to the character of the Christian life. Wesley worried about the pastoral effect of preaching a Calvinist approach to predestination, feeling that it would lead to antinomianism. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you believe in predestination, why should you keep the law? What's the point? Eat, drink, and be merry, because you, tomorrow you will go to heaven because you have been predestined. No matter what you do, you are under irresistible grace. There's no incentive to do what is right. So Wesley said it's not biblical. 
And he felt that the Calvinistic approach undercut the pursuit of holiness because the connection between God's gift and the response is marginalized in his 1739 sermon, Free Grace, which ignited the first round of public controversy with Whitfield, he wrote, So directly does this doctrine tend to shut the very gate of holiness in general to hinder unholy men from ever approaching thereto or striving to enter thereat. Free grace, it was on the basis of these two areas of concern that Wesley argued. Total depravity is affirmed by Wesley, meaning that the fallen human being is completely helpless and in bondage to sin. And this means, contrary to popular misconception, Wesley does not believe that fallen human beings have any inherent freedom of will in terms of seeking. When we seek God, we are called by God. The atonement is universal in scope. Christ's death was sufficient to attain for all. So he spoke about prevenient grace as universally available. Grace is resistible. So this is Arminianism. And predestination is based on God's foreknowledge, not his will. Those that he predestined means those that he knew would choose on his behalf. So the Methodist Reformed theologians, John Wesley lays down the smackdown on predestination. And this I find rather an interesting statement by Wesley. He wrote, To defend a devilish doctrine, he called it a devilish doctrine, like predestination on scriptural grounds, was for Wesley an affront to the whole testimony of the Bible. Predestination, he says, destroys all his attributes at once. It overturns both justice, mercy, and truth. Yea, it represents the most holy God as worse than the devil. But you say you will prove it by scripture. Hold. What will you prove by scripture? That God is worse than the devil? It cannot be. Whatever that scripture proves, it can never prove this. There are many scriptures, the true sense whereof neither you or I shall know till death is swallowed up in victory, but this I know. Better it were such say it had no sense at all than to say it had such sense as this, referring to the verses that we discuss. No scripture can mean that God is not love or that his mercy is not over all his works. He was a profound thinker, Wesley, and his influence spread even into the ranks of the Baptists. So this new theological thinking that had been hounded and persecuted became interwoven into the mainstream. The trouble was that you had some on this side, some on that side. So even today, within the Baptist church, you have both views, either the Calvinistic view or the other view. And sometimes they are so intermingled and Partly there and partly not there. I want to discuss one with you, just as an example. I found it rather interesting. And particularly because this man was a fundamental Baptist. In other words, he was a staunch fundamentalist Baptist. And uh, he died in 1995, Curtis Hudson. And he wrote this book, Why I Disagree with All Five Points of Calvinism. This is now Baptist speaking. And we want to look carefully at what he's saying. So he disputes total inability, 
unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So let's have a look at what he says. Firstly, what does he say about total inability? By total inability, Calvin meant that a lost sinner cannot come to Jesus and trust him as Savior unless he is foreordained to come to Christ. By total inability, he meant that no man has the ability to come to Christ. And unless God overpowers him and gives him that ability, he will never come to Christ. The Bible teaches total depravity. We saw those texts. From the womb, etc., etc. And I believe in total depravity. But that simply means that there is nothing good in man to earn or deserve salvation. The Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And uh, I can concur with this Baptist. While the Bible teaches the depravity of the human race, it nowhere teaches total inability. The Bible never hints that people are lost because they have no ability to come to Christ. The language of Jesus was, now listen to his point, ye will not come to me that ye may have life. Notice, it is not a matter of whether or not you can come to Christ. It is a matter of whether or not you will come to Christ. Has he got a point? Absolutely. Okay. So this Baptist and uh, I am on the same wavelength. Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wing, and ye would not. Matthew 23, 37. Here again, notice he did not say, how often would I have gathered you together, but you could not. He's got a point, right? No, he said you would not. It was not a matter of whether they could, it was a matter of whether they would. If it is true that no person has the ability to come to Christ, then why would Jesus say in John 5, 40, ye will not come to me? Why didn't he simply say, you cannot come to me? The teaching that men, women, and children are totally unable to come to Christ and trust in him as Savior is not a scriptural doctrine. This teaching of Calvinism would put people in hell, no matter what age they were, because of a choice that God made. Now, it gets even worse. Calvinism teaches that because of total depravity, God makes the choice for you that we have discussed. But now, listen to this rationale. If God chooses that you should be lost, God is not being unjust because, after all, you're a sinner from birth. So you deserve what's coming to you. Hell. You're going to get it. And God is not unjust by throwing you into hell because that's what you deserve. So now... The, just are, the justified, the chosen, are in heaven, and the others are in hell. Remember, high Calvinism says God ordained Adam to fall so that this difference can be made prominent. So now you have the saved up there, the lost down here, howling. And by the contrast between the damned and the saved, the glorified are so much more glorified. If this contrast didn't exist, you wouldn't even know how happy you are. Now, excuse me. 
What if one of my children in that kind of theology happened to fall on the wrong side of the choice and was down there roasting in hell for all eternity to make my glorification who has been elected so much greater, how happy would I be in heaven for all eternity? It would be the most miserable state that I could possibly imagine. It would make God a monster. Because he never even gave my child a choice. This kind of theology does travesty to God's character. And he's right. He's absolutely right in its argument. It says you would not. The language is not scriptural. If it's true that a person has the ability to come to Christ, then why would Jesus say, you will not come to me? Why didn't he just say, you cannot come to me? I've chosen that you go to hell. Unconditional election. By unconditional election, Calvin meant that some are elected to heaven while others are elected to hell and that this election is unconditional. It is holy in God's part and without condition. By unconditional election, Calvin meant that God had already decided who will be saved and who will be lost and the individual has absolutely nothing to do with it. He can only hope that God has elected him for heaven and not for hell. This teaching so obviously disagrees with the oft-repeated invitation in the Bible to sinners to come to Christ and be saved that some readers will think that I've overstated the doctrine, so I will quote John Calvin in his Institutes. This is Calvin. Not all men are created with similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained for some and eternal damnation for others. Every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say is predestined either to life or to death. It's clear. It's what Calvin taught. Clear. That's what Spurgeon believed. I have often said, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? God in his foreknowledge knows who will trust Jesus Christ and he has predestined to see that they are justified and glorified. He will keep all those who trust in him and see that they are glorified, but the doctrine that God elected some men to hell, that they were born to be damned by God's own choice, is a radical heresy not taught anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible teach that God wills for some to go to heaven and wills others to go to hell. No, the Bible teaches that God would have all men to be saved. Second Peter said he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. And Timothy says, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? So this debate was absolutely essential in Christian soteriology. Does God really predestine some people to be saved and others to go to hell so that they have no free choice? Absolutely not. Nobody is predestined to be saved except as he chooses of his own free will to come to Christ and to trust him for salvation. Limited atonement. By limited atonement, Calvin meant that Christ died only for the elect. For those he planned and ordained to go to heaven, he did not die for those he planned and ordained to go to hell. Again, I say such language is not in the Bible, and the doctrine wholly contradicts many plain scriptures. For instance, the Bible says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. It's not biblical. How did they come up with this doctrine? I'll tell you another secret. If you have this doctrine in your head, like in Southern Africa, 
where the people are Calvinistic, then the idea will surely sooner or later come into your mind what criterion would God use to choose who is saved and who is lost? On what basis is he going to make the choice? Is he going to say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo? Or is there another criterion? Is it perhaps possible that he chooses by race? And therefore, my race is predestined to salvation and the other is predestined to hell. Well, how would that predispose me to treat those that I believe on the basis of such criteria are chosen to go to hell? Uh, not good. Not good at all. Now, in case you're thinking that I am only picking on uh, apartheid in South Africa, which, to a large degree, was based on such theological thinking on the basis of Calvinism, I will have you know that other races in Africa of different color have the same theology that only black people go to heaven as opposed to white people. So this theology cuts both ways. And if you believe that you are predestined to be saved on the basis of your race, well then, God help us in terms of racism in the world. It shall not be so amongst you. Amongst God's people, there should be no distinction because all who are in Christ are brethren. That's the way and the only way that can be. But this is where this thing leads to. This is what, it, what the end result is. No man will ever look at Jesus Christ and say, you didn't want to be my savior. It won't happen. So, so far, he says the atonement is not limited. It is universal. And he quotes Romans, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's not biblical. We don't have to read it all. But now, let's see how my Baptist friend fares with point. Number four. The fourth point of Calvinism is irresistible grace. By irresistible grace, John Calvin meant that God simply forces people to be saved. God elected some to be saved, and he let Jesus Christ die for that elect group. And now, by irresistible grace, he forces those he elected and those Jesus Christ to, to be saved. The truth of the matter is there's no such thing as irresistible grace. Nowhere in the Bible does the word irresistible appear before the word grace. That terminology is simply not in the Bible. Okay. I still agree with him. Does the Bible say anything about irresistible grace? Absolutely not. The scriptures show that men do resist and reject the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes a number of verses. And he talks about, I've called and you have refused. I've stretched out my hand and no man regarded. There's no such thing as irresistible grace. He, he cites Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which we've already discussed. I would, but you would not. All of these verses... It's not biblical. Now the problem. Number five. Perseverance of the saints. What does my Baptist friend say? The Bible teaches, and I believe, in the eternal security of the born-again believer. 
The man who has trusted Jesus Christ has everlasting life and will never perish, but the eternal security of the believer does not depend on his perseverance. I do not know a single Bible verse that says anything about the saints persevering, but there are several Bible verses that mention the fact that the saints have been preserved. Perseverance is one thing, preservation is another. No, the saints do not persevere, they are preserved. The Bible states in Jude, the servants of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord. So the Bible makes it plain that the believer is kept. He does not keep himself. To the inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and he quotes this verse, who are kept by the power of God. My sheep hear my voice, they follow me. There's a belief that if one is, does not teach universal salvation, he must either be a Calvinist or an Arminius. There are really only three systems which claim to set you free, and then he talks about universalism, Arminianism, and uh, Calvinism. So, on point number five, he says... If you make a choice, God will preserve you and you will be saved. What is that? Once saved, always saved. Is that biblical? He was doing so well. My Baptist friend was doing so well. But then he slipped. He slipped on the final banana peel. And he got stuck. So, you know, if you want to have the truth, you better go all the way. You can't go halfway. Let's just make sure. So, false prophets and teachers. Let's have a look. Second Peter 2 verse 1. But there were false prophets also amongst the people, even as there will be false teachers amongst you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring them upon them swift destruction. Second Peter 2.19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought into bondage. For if, now notice carefully, after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is he talking about? What kind of people? People that have made a choice to follow Jesus, right? What did our Baptist friends say will happen to them? They'll be preserved. Once saved, always saved. But listen to what Peter says. If they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Can they turn from it according to this verse, yes or no? Yes, our Baptist friend is not right. He's not right. But it happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. I can turn away. I can lose my salvation by my choice. So the Bible says, strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able so this was the great debate that was put out there in the world and it affected the character of God. And it had to 
be of such a nature that it permeated through all of Christianity. Now, in Europe, it lost its foothold. It was hounded. But in the United States, it grew. And you see, some of them, like the Baptists, accepted it and almost embraced all of it. Wesley embraced it, accepted all of it. He even included sanctification and saying that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We must have... Uh, must take care of our bodies. We should abstain from things that are harmful to the body. This was the milieu and the thinking of the time when the great awakening was to take place. And it could only happen in the United States of America. Now here's my question. Does God want all of these ideas mingled with error to remain in the various denominations? Or does he want to gather the pearls of truth into one coherent system or body? That is the question we have to ask ourselves. 1 John 4, 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. The banishment of Satan from heaven. This is Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4. God declared his justice and maintained the honor of his throne. But when man had sinned through yielding to the deceptions of this apostate spirit, God gave an evidence of his love by yielding up his only begotten son to die for the falling race. In the atonement, the character of God stands revealed. The mighty argument of the cross demonstrates to the whole universe that God was in no wise responsible for the course of sin that Lucifer had chosen, that it was no arbitrary withdrawal of divine grace, no deficiency in the divine government which inspired in him the spirit of rebellion. God is not to blame. This is the message that must go out to the world. Why was I an atheist? Most of my life. Why was I an atheist? Because of a wrong theology being rammed down my throat about the character of God. I hated him with a passion. And he was hate-worthy as I understood him to be. He was a monster worse than the devil. Just as Wesley had said he was going to be or was. But that's not the God of the Bible. And who's going to set the record straight? Because in my country, in South Africa, they have that same terrible image of God to this very day. In how many denominations in this country and in the, in the Americas in general do they have this concept of God? What about the poor Catholic countries where God will roast you forever and ever in hell for a simple transgression of a child? And even if you are saved, and forgiven by the grace of a priest, you will roast in purgatory for a couple of millennia for a few years of life on this planet. What a distorted picture of God. Who's going to set the record straight? It will not be that way when the great controversy will come to an end. Then with the plan of redemption having been completed, the character of God stands clearly revealed to all created intelligences. 
The principles of his law are seen to be perfect and unchangeable. Sin has revealed its nature. Satan, his character. The extermination of sin will prove God's love and establish his honor before the universe. 1 John 4, 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwells in love dwells in God and God in him. This is my God. And I want to appeal to the entire Christian world to listen to the arguments which God has placed in your midst, not by Seventh-day Adventists only, but the Methodists were used to tell mankind that they have to conform to the will of God and to come back into harmony with his will. And that God is love and he does not want anyone to be lost. But there were some messages that had not yet been discovered in the world. There were some issues that had to be clarified. How does this work? How does God operate? How does his intercession work? None of this was known. But the climate was now ready for the gathering. And in the next lecture, we will see how God did that. And when that final gathering has taken place, how that information and that group with that message will meet the same opposition that all those individuals through the ages experienced. And all that persecution collective persecution of all the ages will come down on God's lost people. And if we are faithful, then we will see that God will vindicate his character in his people and he will come with the clouds of heaven and he will take his redeemed home. But they will have to come from the east. They will have to come from the west and they will have to say, show us. Jesus. May God help us to have a right understanding of the character of God. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.